Well, good morning. I'm just uh, listening to the eight verses of mind training and the 37 practices of a bodhisattva. Uh, and then I went on, and because they brought up um, Chittamatra and uh, therefore Yogacara, I went further. And where are we here? We're also reading a translation of the Trimsika Vijnapti by Vasubandhu. The 30 verses on a virtuous life or a conscious life. And, I mean, I've skipped his introduction because I wanted to read the actual treatise itself. Verse 1 is nice because it gives it in English. He said it and in French. I don't see the French. So he gives it in Sanskrit, and then he goes and translates it. So the first verse talks about self and nature, to be both upakara. Now, he initially says it's emphasizing they're both figurative and conceptual constructs. And then, but then he says upakara has been translated as metaphorical expression, but also may mean usage. And this is why I think I might actually start translating some of these things, because if you go and actually look, and again, the Sanskrit, this is before Pali, this was my, this was my bag. Um, if you look at the word upakara, uh, it literally means moving for a sense which is near about. Right? And that's exactly what we're talking about here. Upakara is relating, uh, as it relates to self and nature, means um, self and nature both are 100% dependent on uh, each other, right? This is this uh, object, self, and object, uh, object duality, right? But, so here's what I'm getting at. I found a new book that I'm uh, attempting to get a copy of in the midst of a lockdown, another lockdown here. It's called Why I Am Not a Buddhist by Evan Thompson, who happens to be, he's a PhD in something, Spends his days earning a living talking about the self, positing on something that he, I don't know, they argue doesn't have an answer. And he writes this book that why I'm not a Buddhist. And if you go and look into it, his argument, uh, he rails against the idea that Buddhists, uh, the idea that Buddhists hold that their process is different than any other process. And I'd argue with him, in a sense, he's not wrong. But also, in another sense, he is absolutely wrong. Seeing as finding an answer to his question of the self would put him out of work, I think maybe, and it can be seen by some of the reviews, it seems some people really uh, are looking at these issues, lay people especially. But if you look at it, the Buddhist difference is we're looking at this subject-object duality, from a different perspective than the West or the psychological. Uh, it's a different dialectic. He says it's the same, but it's not. So in the West and many other ideas of thought, they're still trying to find an answer to the, the quandary of self. What is self? And as I said here, uh, Vasubandhu said that self is upakara. Upakara, it's, it's purely label, right? As I've explained, 
a number of times before. I am because one, first, it's, there's three stages to this. First, you must, uh, you must believe in the self, so the subject object, right? You must say, I am me, to then uh, label uh, some other object. I'll use an example as a chair. I am me because I'm sitting in a chair or, you know, this mug is so far away from me and, you know, it's warmer or it's colder or, you know, how you interact with an object. This is what Upakar is talking about. The self and nature or subject-object is purely based on its relation to each other, right? Both are a construct, but... Both have a conventional reality, but neither of which we are able to perceive firsthand. That's why it goes on and talks about a hallucinated worldview. I like to talk about that because everything we perceive is arguably a hallucination. This is why we talk about the eight consciousnesses. Right? This is a Yogacara, um, a Chittamartan view. We all know about the six consciousnesses, right? The, the ears, nose. And then you have your sixth, which is your, you know, mind. In the theory of the storehouse, we have um, arguably what we've talked about with the Gita. You have your seventh and your eighth, and then there's um, a ninth, a tenth, and eleventh, depending on the sex you're talking about. But to get our point across, we just need to talk about the eight. Because we have our seventh, which talks about where do these latent impressions or, or where are these prejudices or where do these choices based on misperceived desires or preferences or even perceptions, where does this flow from? Where does karma come from? And this started because the, the Dalai Lama himself dumbs down some of this stuff, it seems. He's used the example of a chariot, which is a common example of dependent origination, but then he doesn't break down the metaphor. Same as the metaphor itself is a chariot. You break apart a chariot into its individual parts. What do you have? At that point, you have pieces. You don't have a chariot. It's once we assemble that and label it that it then becomes a charity, chariot. Arguably, even a piece that is produced solely for a chariot is produced from other uh, parts. So the idea... That it's uh, different might possibly be uh, correct, but at the same time incorrect. Because, again, it depends on the subject-object. So are we talking about the individual or are we talking about uh, from what aspect are they looking at this? Right? So I argue that uh, it is different because um, I would argue that the Buddhists have solved uh, the problem of self. That, I mean, I see these gentlemen uh, who earn a living talking about the nature of self. They will talk around this truth that simply the self is a construct. As I've said many times before, it's our greatest barrier, obviously, which is what we need to overcome for this liberation or this awareness. But it's also the tool, right? It's the tool that you achieve because you can't perceive if you're not perceiving firsthand, you can't uh, interact with this phenomenal world. You can't f interact with dharma or nature without the self. 
right? So it's truly just this understanding of its true nature, right? So arguably, once again, there is a difference that makes um, arguably uh, Buddhism uh, a different thought process. Because again, it does talk about uh, what a lot of other religions will talk about, even the meditation idea. But it's this acceptance that we deal directly with this self, whether it exists as a construct or some sort of permanent thing, matters not. The truth that we're talking about here is have they maybe formed a different uh, didactic? So in this case, instead of arguing what the self is or how you go around defining it and figuring it out, that they don't really worry much about that. We've talked about this, this uh, duality that, um, right, there's this great doubt and uh, shraddha or the commitment, devotion, faith that one must have. Not because you know it, but just as the Dalai Lama mentioned in his speech tonight, there comes a point where you have to understand that you're incapable of even understanding this. I mean, I can't even remember uh, the name of the gentleman. I think it was one of the two we were talking about. We were either talking the 37 practices of a bodhisattva or the eight verses of mind training. I think it was the 37 practices of a bodhisattva. It was written by uh, Sangpo. And at the end, he says, oh, I'm, you know, weak-minded and... Um, you know, uh, forgive me for uh, mistakes I might have made. And you know what? Here we go. Let me just mention it here. He says, I've set down for those who wish to follow the Bodhisattva path, the 37 practices to be adopted by all of Buddha's heirs based on what's taught. <clears throat> he says, since my intellect is only feeble, I have studied but a little. This is not a competition, uh, a composition likely to delight the connoisseurs. Yet since I've relied upon the sutras and what the saints have taught, I feel these are indeed the genuine trainings of the Buddha's heirs. And again, when it comes to English, so I mean he's relying upon previous teachers and the teachings that we hold dear. And what saints, saints again in this case, these are people who have shown uh, what works and uh, and have gotten there uh, so yeah uh, that uh, is what I wanted to get across here sitting uh, down and I find it kind of funny you read a lot of the reviews of this book why he's not a Buddhist and again you might find it funny because I myself at this point feel that I would define myself the same way not a Buddhist but I find both the criticism and then maybe even the book. Again, I haven't read uh, the book itself yet, but I have read, uh, well, everything that seems to be out there. So once again, I've run into this where I go and look something up and there's almost nothing on the interwebs, right? See, what's this one here? Yeah, the treaties and 30 stanzas. That one wasn't too bad. But when I tried to look for it in its Sanskrit name, there was maybe 37, review, uh, 37 results. It makes it a little bit tough to figure this stuff out when there's so few. But again, I'm working in English. There's where my problem begins, isn't it? Not. But yeah, so 
That's what I'm going to read as soon as I can get my hands on it. He actually did write another book that I'm going to start with first. What is it here? Waking and Dreaming. Oh, yes, I have it open already. I should just click on that. Here we go. And scroll up to the title. Self and Consciousness in Neuroscience, Meditation, and Philosophy. This should be interesting, i got to tell you, right? Knowing, is the self an illusion? Question mark. This is his chapter 10 on this. It's pretty perfect to wrap it all up, right? So here's a gentleman with a PhD, um, and arguably someone even left a, a review that they said they went on retreat with this guy, and he was there with uh, Sharon Saltzman, the great, pff, and Stephen Batchelor, another phony, egotistical. And it's funny because one of the reviews said that this guy is just an egomaniac himself. And like I said, so these guys are getting paid six figures and probably more. Uh, and all they're doing is it's a big circle jerk, it seems, with each other. And so here he writes this book. It's, what is it? Oh my God, it's 500 pages long. And his final chapter is a question mark, right? But let's just see, just for fun. Let's just go right to the end of his chapter and see what he says. He's got lots of notes. Of course they do. Uh, so what, uh, what I take from this perspective. All right, so he says, What I take from this perspective. He states his own view, he says. It's enlightenment and liberation at least in any sense that he would want to affirm, doesn't consist in dismantling our constructed sense of self. No, I mean, no one ever said that, as may happen in certain meditative states. Well, no, the self doesn't fall apart, but your belief that it is existent, and it is, okay, whatever, jeez. Rather, it consists in, in wisdom that includes not being taken in by the appearance of the self as having independent existence, while that appearance is nonetheless still there and performing its important eye-making function. Nor does enlightenment or liberation consist in somehow abandoning all eye-making or eyeing, all self-individuating oh and self-appropriating activity, although it does include knowing how to inhabit that activity without being taken in by the appearance of there being an independent self that's performing the activity and controlling what happens. We could say that the wisdom includes a kind of awakening, a waking up to the dream of independent existence without having to wake up from the dream. What? And, and he's getting this stuff published. Is no one reading this stuff before they pay for this? Ridiculous. See what I mean? So here again, I started by saying, well, this guy just, I mean, even the reviewers didn't seem to understand. Going on saying, well, I'm not a Buddhist because the Buddhists uh, think they're super special. And, you know, and yet he just argues in a circle, right? He doesn't want to admit that, yeah, you had your answer. Soon as you open up pretty much anything Buddhist, knowing is the self an illusion? Well, yeah, as everything else is. I just explained this. It's, and he just explained what? What did he just go about explaining? That word that I mentioned. Upakara, right? Moving for a sense which is near about. So no, the self doesn't exist. And no uh, liberation or enlightenment or what does he say? Any sense that you'd want to affirm 
doesn't consist of dismantling this constructed uh, sense of self. What it does is dismantling this wholly selfish belief that the self is the universe, that it is the pivot of the universe, kind of like that French expression that I like to self-translate as la barre du ciel, right? The bottom of the sky, the pivot of the universe. It's understanding how that self can, like I said earlier, be both the barrier and the tool to liberation. You must direct it to be the tool and not the barrier because you're not perceiving this firsthand. You must manage this relationship you don't eliminate it. You don't ignore it. Kind of like these gentlemen, right? They're getting paid to study the self, and yet they just jance around the answer that's already there. So, I don't know. I haven't read the books, but overall, I would agree with a number of the reviewers who seem to have read the books that, once again, here we fall in a category of a lot of these scholars who pretend to be practitioners. Um, wow. Where is the sufficiency in this? I mean, here once again, this gentleman, like who I saw him on a podcast with another waste of space, and I'm not being negative. I'm saying if you're writing this book with true intention to help others, why do you write it leaving your readers with more questions than answers? That, that's all I'm saying, right? We have Robert Wright who's doing the exact same thing. He had all the material that he needed to make sense, and yet you'll watch him make an absolute fool of himself in every activity he, he, uh, he gets involved with. And so here's another gentleman that I'm starting to see. I was really hoping that I found a scientist who was seeing some potential sufficiency for humanity, especially in this very special time we're all finding ourselves in. Right? And this is how this, yeah, ridiculous, how he ends his book. When Buddhas don't appear and their followers are gone, the wisdom of awakening bursts forth by itself. And then he puts a, a little line. Let's see where he, uh, he went and got this quote from because it makes no sense at all. What he's saying is at the Dharma ending age, we're just going to figure it out on ourselves, are we? Oh, of course. Yeah. Uh, he's uh, translating uh, or he's quoting Stephen Batchelor. Yeah. And see, this is what makes it funny. So this gentleman is supposed to be a PhD, an intelligent person. And it doesn't take long to find out that Stephen Batchelor is considered... <sighs> His idea of translations are very singular. Yes, this path is a singular path. <sighs> but I don't understand it. So, I mean, <sighs> Nagarjuna is a wonderful source for learning, but I certainly wouldn't recommend you get uh, your translations from Stephen Batchelor because that'll be the number one criticism you'll find is um, his translations make very little to no sense uh, if you understand the source material. But actually, that is something that I would mention. Um, never rely on one translation. I know today we mentioned we were talking about uh, 
the eight verses of mind training and the 37 practices of the Bodhisattva. Um, and uh, what else were we on? Uh, 30 verses uh, of, uh, um, I mean, on mind training, on jhana. 30 verses on representation. 30 verses on uh, satipatipati. Call it what you like. Um, in fact, I found one, what was it? It might have been... Was it, uh, I think it might have been uh, the eight, yes, it was the eight verses on mind training. And I found uh, a Western gentleman who dresses up as Tibetan and he's taken a Tibetan name. Um, and he just changed from mind training to some other words. And of course, you know, trying to sell books and courses and retreats and a website. And it's, it's, uh, it boggles the mind the more you start to see this stuff. I wondered. Remember I said I was going to the thrift store and I'd see these books that didn't even seem read, bought from these New Age stores or spiritual stores. There's one particular supplier here in Canada who uh, provides a lot of these self-help spiritual type books. And I guess that's what's going on. I mean, I was just wondering in my head who's buying these books. It's those people that are uh, donating, donating them to the thrift stores, right? Right, because they're they're sitting there, you can tell they've never been read. Not spines alone, but I mean, even a short little book, you'll see like the the price tag when they go and put another price tag sticker on it. You know that'll get dog-eared or it'll get uh, dirty. You know what I mean? Just little things like you just—it's absolutely flat. You know, a book's never been read. It just, it breaks my heart, right? I mentioned this uh, a little while ago that, I mean, I let that, uh, let's just, we'll end with that very important verse here. Wait, 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 wait. we got to get right back to the beginning here. So the 37 practices, but on the 18th, even though I may be destitute and despised by all, well, Let's look at somebody else's translation, because I wouldn't say despised by all. I mean, I'm not popular, but it was a little rough, a little mean. So, though one may have an impoverished life, always be disparaged by others. See what I mean? Two different translations. One's a lot better, but both have the same meaning. I mean, I'm not going to start uh, going on and on and, 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 you know, when I mention despised by all, I don't think he meant, you know, but, uh, you know, I'm hated by everybody. I mean, I've heard people in retreat say that, like, a uh, number of times. Uh, once you join this path, you start getting treated by people a little bit differently. I mean, I think that's their own little weirdness, but neither here nor there. Step 18, though we may have an impoverished life, right, on the 37 steps or practices of a bodhisattva or... Uh, someone looking to be their best self, sattva. Though they may have an impoverished life, that's many of us this year, though they may be disparaged by others, again, many of us, social media and this cancel culture, though they may be afflicted by dangerous illness and evil spirits, how many of us are dealing with illness, allergies, just being able to get the nutrients we need every day, evil spirits of doubt and regret, and uh, and uh, envy, greed, hate, ignorance. 
and to be without discouragement. You must be without discouragement and take upon oneself all the misdeeds and suffering of beings in the Bodhisattva practice. I mean, that sat hollow for me probably most of the year this year. And it actually took some tree-hugging, crystal-loving um, person to really remind me what this practice is about. Right? Though one may have an impoverished life. Again, this is not simply wealth, uh, finances, impoverished. You may feel that you don't have the compassion and the loving kindness necessary. You don't have it in you. Always disparaged by others. That would include yourself. How many of us spend our day, especially when you sit on that cushion or the chair, it's all you hear, being disparaged by yourself. That one that doesn't exist, but wow, he is loud. He or she or they or them. Though one is afflicted by dangerous illness and evil spirits. And again, your illness could be the self. It could be... Uh, greed, envy, hate. Um, I mean, and some people it can be uh, it's just plain, simple uh, delusion. But you must be without discouragement. That's that thing I've been quoting for so long, Shraddha, that that word came into my life, I guess, at the right time. That commitment and faith, devotion. We see it so often translated individually. That's why I go over and over again. And that's why so many of these uh, really should concentrate on the words themselves. And that's where I started. Right? Here I was with the wife. We were just reading this 30 verses. And almost right away, the one word, upakara. Right? Translating it as a metaphorical expression. Also mean usage. It's a little tough to go and fit those two together. But if you look at the original translation, as I said, if you look at moving for a sense which is near about, right? all of this is that dependent origination. Not that it doesn't exist. When you go and take all those little parts of the chariot and build it together, you have a chariot. But it's the labeling. It's the belief that this chariot is permanent. Same as the self. That's the entire goal of the Abhidharma, was just to break down this idea of self and nature, both being of one, right? Their nature being, you know, not so much a construct, but again, upakara. I mean, it's all relational. I am me because of where I sit and how I, you know, the temperature in relation to... Those divine winds we've talked about, right? Play, praise versus blame. Love versus hate. It's labeling, right? And so I guess we'll end with that treat uh, triumph and disaster. It's the imposters that they are. Why? Not because either one isn't, but because they're both simply a collection of aggregates labeled as such. Break them down. What makes one, I don't know. But we shall see. I'm being hopeful when we do get this book. We'll give it a read. As far as for me, I think it's actually helped me figure some of this stuff out. I mean, once again, I didn't realize there was so much personality that invaded uh, such a simple, necessary uh, field of, of uh, study. 
Never would have I thought. I mean, I was even getting a little upset with the Dalai Lama of who he was endorsing with the translations, but I understand now. It's just you want to get this stuff out there and translate it. When there's one translation of something, we're really uh, at a loss, right? So, yeah. Once again, something that's supposed to be short just took too long. Someday, someday I'll get there. Have a great day. Wow. So, Evan Thompson did a podcast on CBC Radio in October. And so I haven't listened to it yet. I'm still listening to the last uh, 20 minutes of uh, Dalai Lama's teachings last night. But I'm just going to read uh, a couple little things here. And I think we're going to get the idea of my first impression. It was right. So uh, most of it's, just again, like I said, a circle jerk. Because a person... Uh, Interviewing him doesn't seem to have any sort of skin in the game, right? Yeah, it doesn't mention who wrote it or anything. It's just, who was the producer? So this is Evan Thompson, sadly, supposedly an expert on the self, but he doesn't seem to have a clear understanding of what it is. He does have a clear understanding on how to cash a paycheck, spend all day talking about it. But anyway, so he wrote this book called Why I Am Not a Buddhist. And then he goes on and says, well, Buddhism sucks because it thinks it's special and it doesn't have the trick. He goes on and says that a cosmopolitan framework is the trick. Right? He says that uh, Buddhism was born in a fertile landscape of spirituality and philosophy. In its earliest phase of growth in India, it was just one of many ways of making sense of existence. And over the course of history, Buddhism has been part of cosmopolitan cultures in conversation with many other traditions, Hinduism and Jainism in South Asia, Confucianism and Taoism in China, and more recently, in the pluralistic cultures of North America and Europe. Hmm. Well, let's break this first part down. So he's right. Buddhism was born in a very fertile landscape. But it's not strictly India there, bruv, but okay. But let's talk about this. Hinduism and Jainism. Yes, they both predate Buddhism. Jainism's still around for the most part, but they believe rocks have life force. So we can understand why they haven't gone, you know, mainstream. Hinduism, he's wrong in that sense because the Vedic tradition is what I would have quoted uh, as having been around at the time. Uh, what we consider Hinduism now is actually a modern interpretation after the Mughals came in and wiped out uh, this rich philosophical history in India, replaced it with Islam for centuries, uh, they tried to re... well, kind of like what a lot of people are doing, especially in that pluralistic cultures of North America and Europe. They're just inventing their own, right? But he's right, because it did. Buddhism did grow out of that rich culture. Uh, in the Indian subcontinent. But what did it grow from? It was, uh, they didn't believe that there was this weird, right? the Ajivakans didn't have it, right? Because, yeah, what you chose to do had an influence on outcomes. The Vedic tradition, mm, he had kind of an issue with it because if you thought you were uh, just, again, we're talking about self. So let's just look at the self then. If you look at the Anatman, the, the Hindus of the Vedic tradition, they believe that you have a little piece of a god in you, which, again, if we're arguing, we need to minimize that sense of specialness. 
you can understand where the Buddhist concept came from, equanimity. And I'm going to get back to this. And the same can be said for Jainism. Again, when there's issues there we won't even go into, and it was a rejection of some of the rich philosophies at the time Buddhism was born of, absolutely. Now he goes on and talks about Confucianism and Taoism in China. That is not really a rich history. Um, Confucianism and Taoism had become incredibly stagnant, and any of the... uh, the tradition that we know of today does not even represent what it initially was. And yes, there was a couple instances where they did live together in harmony, but much more often they were actually either trying to suppress each other or influence each other uh, to the point where they've lost their purity or their sense of um, independence, right? So his... Cosmopolitan doesn't work in this sense because Confucianism, Taoism, and Buddhism weren't made better in China because of their uh, living together. I don't think they really lived in harmony per se. A better example might have been maybe Jerusalem at the time when it was being uh, administered by the the Muslims and the uh, all of the cultures were allowed, uh, Judaism and Christian and all these, there was a number, believe it or not, not just the main three that we know of today, they were allowed to, um, uh, they were just allowed to be left alone. And what we're talking about, this true cosmopolitan idea that they were allowed to nurture their own religion uh, in harmony with other um, diametrically different uh, belief systems, in a sense, right? And as far as the pluralistic cultures, I mean, you just listen to me for 28 minutes ramble on about how None of these guys seem to be teaching this. So a lack of sufficiency. So we're not going to say that this watered-down version of anything that we have in the West or in Europe is of any value. I can't say that at all. I mean, (laughs) I can't. So he goes on and says, it's the richness of this cosmopolitanism that Thompson wants to draw attention to. So again, I just went through it, and I don't see this richness, actually. I saw more of a watering down or even a... Uh, poisoning, but... So he goes on and says, the idea, and this is him being quoted, the idea is that we should identify as human beings with the larger human community rather than with exclusively local and particular identities. Yes, that's equanimity, upeka, altruism. That's that's exactly why Buddhism was born of such a rich philosophical tradition because of the caste system that he forgot to mention that was present at the time, right? (laughs) And he goes on and says, the cosmopolitan framework, I think, is important for understanding religion in relation to science and art. It provides a kind of overarching framework for seeing human life as consisting in many different forms of meaning-making. Yes, yes. We're not discussing the, the act of trying to find meaning, what we're actually trying to discuss is whether Buddhism has a path that has survived 2,500 years when really arguably no other tradition has. Does it have that sufficiency that humanity needs? Does it have some sort of prescription that seems to be something that we need? We're not talking about whether, you know, uh, uh, 
uh, a multicultural society makes us richer. That's not what we're talking about here. He considers himself uh, solely a scientist uh, of self. So we'll stick to self. And again, I don't get what he's talking about here. I don't know how our understanding of self has been made richer by any of these examples so far, but we'll go on, right? He says, uh, adding, what holds them together is a larger sense, in a larger sense, is the shared humanity of them, the larger human community. No, no, I don't get it. I don't get it. He says, after he finished writing Why I'm Not a Buddhist, Thompson realized the shortcoming of the cosmopolitan tradition. It's anthropocentric, human-centered. And I guess he should have said that's the shortcoming. In a time of crisis, he goes on, that shortcoming is important to acknowledge and integrate into our experience of the world. Oh, my gosh. So, in a time when we're not supposed to be labeling things and, you know, but no, the most important thing to worry about on the planet today is the climate crisis. Maybe it's them and us, right? Like you either believe in one thing or you're against us. Again, <laughs> he's using probably the greatest example against cosmopolitanism is this climate crisis. And again, don't misunderstand. I've been an environmentalist for decades. What I'm talking about is when they tell people you either accept that you must change your life completely or the end of the world is coming. No matter what science says, no matter what human nature, or you're against us, them or us. I argue that if we did like the wife and I do, and just do your best to make differences. Reduce your consumption of plastic and try to do things like compost. I cannot believe that we're talking about carbon tax and there is no mandatory compost, the most recyclable, reusable uh, item on the planet. And yet, please tell me how cosmopolitanism has making, made this climate crisis perfect. No, because there, if there is a climate crisis, why are we not trying to find a solution instead of dividing? But that's eh, neither here nor there. He goes on and says, I see cosmopolitanism as a kind of evolving philosophical framework. Well, I would argue that as is anything, any philosophy. He says it's not a fixed thing. No, nothing is a fixed thing. And if he studied Buddhism, grew up around Buddhist thinkers, then he knows that is the heart of Buddhism impermanence. It goes on and says, I think one of the challenges for it here and now is to evolve its sensibility beyond a kind of human exceptionalism. Well, once again, that's equanimity. That's upekka, right? That's arguably where the Gita had it right, the idea that we are all sharing the same special spark. We're all special kind of misunderstood thinking that we're all kind of like godly and then we get kind of arrogant with that idea but no equanimity means we are all equal all made of the same stuffs no better than the other it makes us better to treat each other again this exceptional situation of philosophy also included an abhorrent sense of Cast, meaning I'm better than you just by the nature of who gave birth to me. That's what gave birth to this phenomenal 
thought system. And again, Evan goes on and says, he finds that that uh, if we were to get uh, evolved beyond this uh, human exceptionalism, so what he's saying, if, if we evolve equanimity, it will really attune us. It will sensitize us to a larger value uh, and good of the biosphere. Wait a minute. So if we understand that we're all one, and so again, dualism here, because his end goal is to get people to be environmentalists here. It seems it's not for people to be aware and suffer less. It's really quite funny, but neither here nor there. It goes on and says, which I think is absolutely crucial for us to find our way through the climate crisis. And so it ends with saying the title of Thompson's book is reminiscent of a famous essay by mathematician and philosopher, the prominent atheist Bertrand Russell where it was an attack on Christianity. Thompson regards his own critique as a friendly one. I argue there's no critique at all. Uh, Given his lifelong relationship with it, I argue he doesn't have a relationship then if he doesn't understand this simple fact. He says what he takes from Russell is the idea that we should try to look at things as clearly as possible with a critical eye and that it's important to do and in, in a way without fear and without compromising our intellectual standards or our philosophical standards. So wait a minute here. He's talking about how important it is for humanity to be cosmopolitan, yet his only concern is the climate crisis. And his entire career is based on the nature of self. What is it? How do we understand it? And he dances around the answer that's been there for 2,600 years. It's absolutely ridiculous, but it's not. This is what I was talking about. This is that great doubt. He does not have the great doubt because he is so arrogant that he believes he has the answers and he believes he's able to suss out answers. That when he is so deluded that he believes he understands this better than another, as we saw clearly in a simple, how short was this podcast? It was 53 minutes long and all we did was read a half dozen paragraphs from it. You see the duality, the ego, the self screaming through in an individual who is paid to find the nature of self. It's absolutely hilarious because that's exactly what we're dealing with here. You just have to accept that we can't completely understand, but I'm not even going to get into that. Long story short, don't waste your time on this book. Seems like quite a a real joke. I'll update it later, but uh, yeah, yeah. Seems like kind of a, we got another... Stephen Batchelor, uh, Jay Garfield, and maybe even worse, maybe even a Robert Wright here. Someone who just writes to cash the paychecks, doesn't give a gosh darn who they're harming in the process or what sort of uh, inappropriate or malevolent ideas they put forth or just, I don't care about wasting people's time. I mean, how long does it take to read a book nowadays? I mean, shouldn't you feel a little ashamed? Like, think of movies. We watched a movie last night, right? And I tell you, we should be able to go back and be paid for wasting our time with some of these movies, right? Like, I'm not simply talking about, say, if you went into a theater, which we can't nowadays, but say you went into a theater and you paid them, well, let's say video on demand. Say we paid $10 to simply rent a movie for two hours. And that movie is so bad I'm not talking about simply I want my $10 back. I'm talking about if the legal minimum wage is $14, 
then you just wasted $28 of my time and charged me $10 for the privilege. So this is what I'm talking about here. If this gentleman is cashing a check, being paid for by the government too, in no small part, because he works at a university, he's cashing a check and he's saying he's studying the nature of self and yet he is actively hiding any act of productivity because, I mean, I don't know. It just seems like, uh, here I go talking in circles, complaining about people talking in circles, but neither here nor there. Um, I'll still uh, read the book, um, but it doesn't look like it's going to come up with any great insights. So yeah, Evan Thompson, another one of these. Well, I've gone one step further. And here I'm listening to spiritual insights from the Sermon on the Mount from Advaita Vedanta. But what I'm reading is throwing out the Buddha with the offering water. Comments on Evan Thompson's Why I'm Not a Buddhist. It's by Jay Garfield. I've mentioned this before, what a problem there may lay uh, in both of their but we just came across a perfect example of how neither one of them seemed to understand this. Now, forget about his, his final conclusions. His final conclusions are absolutely hollow. He talks about not being a Buddhist because he says, and I quote, You must take the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha as your only protection for the ills of samsara. As I say, I am a Buddhist. I am. Right? I'm not a modern Buddhist or a, one of these any of these sillies. No, I am simply trying to achieve liberation, awakening, enlightenment to these simple truths that nothing is permanent. This sense of self is not what we think it is. And all of our dissatisfaction with this existence flows from those simple truths. That's it. Right? And so what am I talking about here? So forget his silly final conclusions. A little bit higher up, he critiques Evan. He says he likes him and he likes to debate him. And he does. Jay just likes to argue. So he quotes Evan when he brings uh, the Buddhist modernist uh, thinking about awakening Bodhi. And he goes on and talks about this. He says that... Um, They argue about what this awakening, this enlightenment, this concept is. Is it uh, an idea of, you know, love, of money? So he says he doesn't make the, the, the argument. So I'll read the final paragraph and we'll see if he does. I think the Buddhist modernist concept of enlightenment is incoherent. Either you embrace faith in awakening in nirvana, which, according to the tradition, transcend conceptual thought, or you choose to believe only in what can be made scientifically comprehensible, in which case you have to give up the idea of enlightenment as a non-conceptual and intuitive realization of the fullness of being or the suchness of reality. For these aren't scientific concepts. You can't have it both ways. Okay, well, actually, we're going to discuss this first, and then we're going to discuss how Jay Garfield doesn't get it either. So Jay's going to go on and attack him based on this concept of Shraddha, and Jay doesn't even have the proper concept of Shraddha. So let's just break apart this paragraph from Evan. 
So he says, according to the tradition, right, you must believe. Right? He says, you embrace the faith in awakening nirvana. Absolutely. He says, this transcends conceptual thought. Absolutely. But he says, it's a non sequitur. What? We've discussed this. Shraddha, as Jay goes on to say, is not like the Western concept of faith. He says he prefers to use the translation of confidence. If you're a scholar, translate it for what it actually says. Shraddha is faith, commitment, and confidence. It's all three. If you are a scholar of this language, you know there's no single translation of these concepts. These words mean things, right? Shraddha is a combination of a number of different words, so it's a concept, not simply a word. So he's saying you must believe in either this conceptual thought that transcends your reality, your understanding, right? I mean, that's religion, is it not? Or you must believe, and what did he say here? Um, Well, in science, Right? He says you either believe in the truthness or you have your faith in science, your confidence in science, or in Buddhism. I argue it's neither. It's both. It's both this and that, but it's neither. It's the tetralemma, the chetashkoti. It is this great doubt that I have incessantly begun to talk about because it is so often misunderstood and mislaid. So again, Evan misunderstands. It is absolutely both. It is both the Buddhist concept that you must have faith, shraddha, confidence, devotion in this truth that the self is not as we define it, that nothing is permanent. I mean, you can have real faith and confidence in these items, but for you to be able to experience this awakening, this liberation, this moment of clarity, the satori, this moment where that self does uh, melt, not completely away, but is placed in the proper context, right? That it's not what uh, self is not, it's about defining what it is and what it is not, right? So again, Jay goes on and he says, well, his problem is that he mistakenly translates Shraddha as faith when it's sometimes confidence. He prefers confidence. I argue Shraddha is faith and confidence and commitment because of this great doubt. And this is why Jay says he can't be a Buddhist because he can't um, he can't put together these two disparate but gosh, the two of them are arguing at the exact same thing. Neither of them have the answers because they're incapable of understanding it. They are a finite mind discussing discussing a finite um, concept. So once again, neither of them get this. They're both arguing the same thing. And argue, it's funny because Jay goes on and he adds in um, Kant uh, and Schopenhauer and Wittgenstein. Come on. You're just trying to sound smart. You're not smart when you say, Shraddha is not faith, buddy. It's commit. Well, it's not. It is. It's both. And it's none. Right? It is a concept meant to awaken a possibility. It's not 
and absolute. I mean, literally, the heart of this teaching is there are no absolutes. Science, there are no absolutes. You cannot have faith in science as an answer or a truth. You, as I've said many times before, you can have your faith in the process that is science, same as faith in the process or the prescription that is this path to self-discovery. You don't have to accept one or the other. I argue that you must find your own path. You must build it like the chariot from individual pieces that you pull from what works for you. This is a quote from the Buddha. Take what works based on logic and reason. Right? If you're guided by insight right? and, and proper and this is why we talk about sila, morality. And again, equanimity. Right? That's why I talked about uh, step 18 of the bodhisattva path. Even when all signs point to no, just like the Buddha, after having achieved enlightenment, again, he'd achieved this. His doubt wasn't in the path, as these gentlemen seem to have. His doubt was purely in humanity, as these gentlemen tend to argue that the failure of all these philosoph philosophical systems are the people following it. Well, yeah, of course. That's what we're talking about here. But in the end, it just boils down to either they don't understand it, ignorance, or they don't want to understand it. Delusion. Right? This is the teaching. Three poisons of avarice, right? greed, attachment, right? of hate, of aversion, of, of uh, you know, black and white. I like or dislike. It's these dualities. And here these gentlemen are talking about dualities. Both of them. Both of them are talking about, well... It's black or white, and I mean, I just can't do that. And here they argue, as I've said many times before, they argue they're following the Majjhimaka path. Well, I'm in the middle, and I can't absolutely accept all of these teachings as true, so I will accept none. Or, as he says, well, I believe this, but I don't believe that. Well, that's the proper path. Yet here they go and say, well, no, then that's not the path. The path is 100% individual. You build it yourself. From individual aggregates, the same teaching is also the building blocks for the achievement. Right? So once again, they don't get it. Right? The self is not an object, but it is our way to achieve this awareness. What is the awareness? The awareness is about the self. It's not about elimination. It's not about that it doesn't exist. It's about what it's not. And what it's not is not what Evan sees it as, as a professional uh, trying to define what the self is. He doesn't get it. It's not what he is trying to define it as or what he's trying to define it uh, as it's not. And same for Garfield. It, Shraddha is not what he thinks it is. Right? Shraddha is no different than the three poisons and the Brahma Viharas. By the way, Brahma Vihara just means commonly translated as Temple of God, but the Brahma, Brahman, 
I translate it as the temple of oneness, of, of suchness. So what are the counters to the three poisons of delusion or ignorance, of aversion and attachment? The source of our suffering, the source of our belief that this self is existent. It's the Brahma Viharas, right? Of compassion and loving kindness and equanimous, equanimous, altruism, equanimity, that idea of being able to have joy for others, uh, empathetic joy. And we forget no harm flows from this because how can you do harm to another being if you are resident in equanimity? And the final aspect of this teaching is Shraddha. What do you place your faith in? Don't place your faith in the Buddha or in Buddhists or this meditation or that practice or this practice or this belief or this word or that meaning. You simply place it in what I mentioned earlier, the truths. But you don't even have to go that far. You can simply have faith that there is delusion in this world. A lot of it is either caused by or causes aversion and attachment, which therefore causes dissatisfaction, even suffering. How do you fight these? You don't have to discuss self or reincarnation or the nature of being. You just have to understand that compassion eliminates hate. That equanimity balances greed and jealousy. That uh, empathetic joy eliminates uh, fear and doubt and jealousy, envy. That this faith isn't the answer, but it is your commitment. Shraddha. It's not faith. It is. It's commitment. It's not commitment. It's devotion. It's confidence. Right? In the West, we've, we've bastardized the meanings of so much. And yet, the problem isn't the words or even the meanings. It's the people who's discussing it. Because here, once again... We have two professionals. The two of them being paid absolute fortune for these ideas. But it seems the goal is to cash the checks, not to teach or inform or enlighten. Because once again, we've gone and uh, spent an afternoon reading two gentlemen who purport to be experts on their subjects. Neither one of them seemed to have a grasp of the subjects they claim to represent or the understanding they claim to represent. They don't seem to be able to put that forth in their writing. 
right? As I said, they both seem to be subject of the same duality they uh, laud as the source of so much confusion. <laughs> they themselves tend to be uh, some of the greatest victims. That's the... Uh, that's ego for you, isn't it? I'm as guilty of it, too. I mean, I try to stick to uh, to being humble. But it's it's hard when you're perfect in every way. Right? So that's why... Um, Hmm. I mean, it's tough, right? I mean, maybe that's why there's only these uh, egomaniacs, right? Because I'll give you, I've given this example before because I've been thinking about it this week because I've been working with the self. What is the nature of self? What is self? And I was giving tours. And it was mostly about Buddhism, some history. Um, and I was in... Uh, the museum alone, which is interesting because it didn't happen a lot, but I was there alone. Nice day. It was a beautiful day. Um, and what was even more interesting is um, uh, I honestly don't know what they call themselves anymore, but he was a, a follower of, um, of Krishna. He's a Hare Krishna. He wasn't shy of that, but it was pretty obvious based on his dress and he had his japas in his little japa bag. What I found was interesting. Uh, first was the person who was leading him around, just dressed normally, he was taking him everywhere. But he let him come in by himself, so he was there by himself. And he did openly talk to me, and he talked to me about... Um, me being a Buddhist, and yeah, I'd tell him that I was a Buddhist. And then he asked me about, you know, my interest or knowledge of of his tradition. He mentioned, I can't remember what he called it, but there's there's a number of synonyms for their tradition. And I was familiar, and I just mentioned, um, you know, our concept of the Atman. An Atman. Or the Atman. Atta. The self. Right? And uh, he might have misunderstood because he asked, well, well, like, how do you see it? And I just said, there's such, suchness. And he chuckled. And I gave him great kudos because he didn't really go into it. But he didn't know really what I meant. And what I simply meant was um, we are, and I did say, and I said, we're non-theists, right? So that suchness isn't given by some god. I mean, he can consider himself non-theistic in the sense that, like I said earlier, Brahman nature can just be considered this magical life force. Not magical, I shouldn't say that, but this special, special life force we, we hold. But um, he asked me how we saw it different as Buddhists. And I just mentioned, you know, we're non-theistic, so right, we don't see it as a permanent self. Right? Self doesn't reincarnate, doesn't transmute. Right? And I do understand. I've been studying the Gita for a number of decades. So I understand the differences, right? The Atman is Brahman. It's given uh, at birth, taken again at death. Really, arguably, no different 
in a sense of how you see it. So I don't know if this gentleman, when I mentioned that, you know, a non-theist and we don't um, define the Atman in the same way. And when I mentioned it, he asked me how I would define it and I defined it as suchness. That's, that would be me and that's how I would define it. Oneness is what, but I've had a lot of uh, pushback when I use the term oneness. Again, that uh, that's what I think they mean by Brahman nature. It's an idea that we all share. It's not an idea that you're special. But I don't know if this gentleman, he just smiled. He had a real nice uh, demeanor about him, just smiling, you know. And, I mean, I don't know what he really was thinking, whether he wanted uh, to make me understand better or if he knew I understood. But what I couldn't make him understand is, um, you know, I, there's no way that I would dress as funny as, as some of these gentlemen's gentlemen do. I mean, it took a long time for even members of my own uh, sangha to understand that I'm not interested in wearing robes or or anything like that. Not for the real reasons. Uh, well, real reasons. I mean, that's my own perception, obviously. But for me, I see it as um, wearing the robes is just more ego. I mean, and that's what I'm getting at here. So, as a couple of gentlemen argue back and forth, the nature of self, the nature of uh, faith, or yet it's just ego screaming back and forth, and none of them seem to understand. Right? I mean, I don't know. Maybe that gentleman, the Hare Krishna gentleman, realized that the goal was simply to be pursuing moksha, enlightenment, awakening, to become the best person, sattvic, uh, individual that we can be. So how we define these individual terms uh, matters less than the equanimity. So it was better that we spent that moment sharing, sharing, right? What we shared rather than the differences. And that's once again where the problem lies, right? Because Evan would talk, uh, what was that, the podcast, right? He talked about how the cosmopolitan nature of uh, northern India or um, eastern China, northern China, I mean, depending on where you break it down. I posit that uh, Buddhism has survived as a philosophy of thought in spite of uh, where um, it was found. Again, even in tours, uh, I never confuse the difference between the invasion of India and the, uh, the squeezing of Buddhism out of the Indian subcontinent. I never confuse that with, the, uh, with what some people consider scholarship in China. I mean, if you look at the history, very little scholarship was actually done, a lot of translation. Uh, but for a long, long period, 
of when it was Buddhist. Uh, the teachers were actually of, uh, from another culture. So they were bringing in Indians or Tibetans or even Mongolians. And there's some evidence to show that they were studying Buddhism in Tibetan right up to what would be considered more of a modern time. Keeping the tradition alive Considering what we discussed earlier about the influence of Confucianism and Taoism, and I argue, I mean, I've been studying the I Ching for over 30 years. I don't know if that makes me um, more knowledgeable on the subject, but, uh, I mean, the Tao Te Ching and Taoism is uh, it's not, uh, it's not what it once was. It's gone through a number of different... Um, incarnations. Same for Confucianism. I mean, there was even a, a period when they were ridiculed. Arguably more than one period. But but that's neither here nor there. Again, if our goal is sufficiency, if our goal is to find an answer or a solution, why do we spend so much time dancing around? I mean, here... Um, yeah, I, I don't know what my point is at this point. I just wanted to share the fact that um, Jay Garfield even uh, shared a criticism of his... Uh, but again, what's interesting is this APA Pacific Division. So not only is it enough that they're being paid by a half dozen different schools to teach classes that aren't, I don't know, I wouldn't even say teach, hold lectures. I like that they say that now because there's no learning to be had. So the American Philosophical Association. So I mean glad-handing each other, I guess, eh? Yeah, Pacific Division on Twitter. That both says it all, doesn't it? They actually have a division for Twitter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Philosophical Association on Twitter. That's about it. I mean, that makes perfect sense for me. Right? And just members at large. <laughs> Member at large. Oh, president. Oh, well, that makes all the sense in the world now, doesn't it? Yes, it does. So their little meeting of the APA, the American Philosophical Association, that Jay Garfield was paid to come and give this little talk at, uh, the president happens to be Evan Thompson, the same... No, oh, I wasn't wrong, was I? It's just one big, giant, glad-handing circle jerk, isn't it? And is any of them paying attention to what the... Uh, <laughs> the supposed goal is supposed to be. I think not. <laughs>